Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Kirsten, we made it to episode six. Wow, this is unbelievable. I mean, not unbelievable like I didn't think we would follow through, but just it's amazing. It's going by quickly. And so listeners, I mean, obviously, we're so happy to have you here. So it's a lot of work that goes into this, but just a glimpse behind the curtain, Kirsten and I were talking about how much fun it is. <laughs> totally. It's like a lot of hours and a lot of effort, but it it's not like work in a negative way. Yeah. And I was saying to you how I have always really liked doing little bursts of research. And I, I mean, you know, I was thinking the other day, actually, Will researchers, actual researchers, be insulted by my use of the word research? Because I don't know if it really qualifies as research in in the, you know, official sense of the word, but my version of research. But my my huge character defect, which has held me back thus far, is that I get bored really easily. So I've looked into grad school like eight million times. And every time when I get to the edge of it, I'm like, "Eh, can I do that for three years? And then I'm always like, no, I I just can't. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, could I write a thesis on that? No, no, I absolutely could not, you know, but this is like, I get to exercise that part of my brain that just wants to like do research and dig into things, but only so far and then move on to the next shiny thing. And so that is kind of perfect for this format is like we get a topic, I dig into it like crazy. I find out everything that I can and then like string it together in a way that makes sense in my brain and then like move on. (laughs) I was like trying to describe it to a friend where I was like, I feel like the meme of either Charlie from Always Sunny Looking absolutely unhinged, connecting the red string to all of the conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> or maybe the woman, I think that's like a Brazilian uh, soap star that has all the numbers and mathematical formulas <laughs> around her head. As I, w- I was like trying to explain it to someone and I was like, you don't get it. The Lindbergh baby <laughs> was kidnapped and killed, which then inspired Maurice Sindek and Where the Wild Things Are, which then... Then went to Jim Henson and Labyrinth. Yes, totally. <laughs> They're just like, cool. <laughs> you know I love that meme. I had that in my office. <laughs> so hopefully the listeners enjoy our uh, our paths, tangents, research, <laughs> and <laughs> unhinged fascination. I really hope so, because we really like doing it. Well, and I think... We could just jump into this one. All right, let's do it. I'm ready. So another peek behind the curtain. So uh, the episode we recorded last time was about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, and it really went into the urban legend of The Hook. So hopefully you've listened. Mm -hmm. Uh, No spoilers, but Kirsten and I were chatting about urban legends. We did a whole bonus episode on them. And then we were like, oh, you know what a good one would be? would be Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. And that is the basis yes. of this episode, but it did not follow the path we expected it to. <laughs> so as you can see, we've titled this one, There's Something About 
Bloody Mary. Um, and that is our jumping off point. And so I will I will kick it off um, as I usually do. But before we start, I want to make a disclaimer because I, and Andrew knows this about me and he likes me anyway, um, but I am a total Anglophile. Like I love just about everything British, um, particularly the monarchy and like not as an institution. I'm not a monarchist, um, but I, you know, I just, there's something about the royal family and I don't endorse colonialism or imperialism or any of that. Um, but I love the pageantry and honestly, I really like the intrigue and the gossip too. And that's like a whole side, maybe like for a bonus episode in the future. One time at one point in my life, I read an article that linked people's enjoyment and consumption of gossip to our need as a society to like know what's going on and it's like a self-preservation thing and so ever since then I've been quoting this article that I can't cite or source um to kind of justify my interest in gossip but anyone who knows me knows that that's kind of like a guilty pleasure of mine and I feel like the royals give good gossip um so I was pumped to dig into Bloody Mary today um and take out my oh I put it away I I had it out to show you Andrew but my 1998 edition of Britain's Kings and Queens that I got at the Tower of London long ago um and finally put all of my useless royal knowledge to good use so take a deep breath. That's my disclaimer at the start. Um, but to really get into Bloody Mary, I think we have to kind of back up a little bit and first clarify who was the person who's actually known as Bloody Mary. I think that is a point that there's a lot of confusion about. There were a lot of Marys back then, um, and back then being the 15th and 16th centuries in England, but, you know, Marys were just common. And I joke when I'm working on my family genealogy, I think I mentioned um maybe in the bonus episode or episode five that I'm, I'm kind of into genealogy. And I joke that if you ever want to not be found and you're in an Irish family, like my family is Irish. So like McDermott's and Gearin's and Ahern's, oh my, like the best way to never be found is to name your kids Mary or Edward because <laughs> there were just like shit tons of them. <laughs> and the same applies to the Tudors and the Stuarts. So As we get started, there are really like three main Marys that cause confusion around Bloody Mary, and they are Mary Tudor, Mary Tudor, and Mary Stuart. Okay, so we've got that straight. (laughs) Not confusing at all. And so... As always, in the episode notes, we link to our sources, and Wikipedia has wonderful family trees, so I'm not going to recreate the family tree of the royal family, but check it out if if you get confused. But first, we have Mary Tudor, who is or was the youngest sister to Henry VIII, he of many wives and Protestantism in England. Uh, She was also the grandmother of Lady Jane Grey, who briefly took the throne after the death of Henry's successor, Edward VI. So we're talking about that kind of time period. So Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII. Um, Next, we have Mary Tudor, a.k.a. Mary I of England. She was the oldest child of Henry VIII and half-sister of Edward VI and Elizabeth I, kind of like the most famous, who Mary was queen for a little over five years after Lady Jane Grey, if you recognize her as having briefly been queen. That's disputed. Or after Edward VI, if you don't acknowledge Lady Jane Grey. And Mary I was the predecessor to 
Elizabeth I, and she was a staunch Catholic. The last, the third Mary in this grouping, we have Mary Stuart, also known as Mary Queen of Scots, granddaughter of Henry VIII's eldest sister, Margaret Tudor. And as her name implies, she was Queen of Scotland. So those are kind of the three main Marys as we get started. Now, which one of these famous Marys was Bloody Mary? If you guessed Mary I of England, daughter of Henry VIII, then you are correct. She she is the infamous, famous Bloody Mary. And I'm not even going to dive into her crimes in depth um, because, I mean, we're talking about, like, the whole of English history and uh, we only have an hour. <laughs> but long story short, her mom, who was Catherine of Aragon, the first wife of Henry VIII, was Catholic and was raised raised Mary Catholic. You know, everybody was Catholic at that time in England. When Harry dumped Catherine for Anne Boleyn, brought Protestantism to England in the form of the Church of England so he could divorce Catherine, and then banished Catherine to some remote castle with no access to Mary or her friends, well, that soured Mary just a little bit on Protestants, full stop. So she was Catholic, also had a bit of a grudge against Protestants. So when she took the throne, she worked tirelessly to put the Protestant genie back into the bottle and return England to a Catholic state. And her efforts to do this included the execution of 283 prominent Protestants for heresy. Most of them were burned at the stake. So unsurprisingly, this is how she got the nickname Bloody Mary. But a big kind of but here, and Andrew is the one who kind of brought this to my attention as we were doing research, as evil as that was, and I'm not saying that burning almost 300 people at the stake is not evil, she has been a bit unfairly maligned throughout history, and mainly by the Protestants who regained power after her death under Elizabeth I, who was Protestant. And I say unfairly because it was kind of a thing at that time for monarchs to execute people willy-nilly. Henry VIII had literally thousands of people executed, including wives, as most of us know. Some estimates go as high as 72,000 people. I mean, that's like an entire city. Yet he has no bloody nickname. His dad, Henry VII, also a prolific murderer. Plus, maybe Henry VII maybe killed the young princes in the tower. Uh, So it seems like 283 is kind of just a drop in the bucket compared to that. But I'm totally digressing here because after all of our digging, it turns out that Bloody Mary, Mary the First of England, isn't a likely inspiration for the eponymous Bloody Mary kids game um, that started all of all of this discussion and our plans for this episode. So here we are, Andrew and I, we're kind of like hip deep in Mary research and we now have no cultural artifact, the game. So we have no crime and we have no episode. So what the hell do we do? Well, uh, in my internet travels, I came upon an interesting story about a possible crime that was linked to Mary, Queen of Scots. So now Mary, Queen of Scots, remember, was the granddaughter of Henry VIII's eldest sister, Margaret, who Margaret married into this Scottish royal family when she was just a child, which was a thing back then. And at that time, the Scottish royal family was a completely separate family and lineage from the English royal family. So see Braveheart. No, I'm just kidding. That movie is not historic, historically accurate at all. Um, but Mary, Queen of Scots, 
inherited the throne when she was six days old from her father, James V, who had died after a battle. And her mother was the French-born Mary of Guise. And so when Mary was, was little, she was five years old, in fact, a marriage treaty was arranged between her mom and the King of France. And five-year-old Mary would eventually marry his son, the King of France's son, three-year-old Dauphin Francis. So Dauphin is basically what their term in, in France for prince. So Dauphin Francis. Mary was then sent to live in the French court for 13 years. So until she turned 18, she would live in France in the French court. Um, and then at that time, she and Francis would marry. In her entourage to France were four friends selected by Mary of Guise from um, some of the really noble Scottish families. And these friends happened to be named, can you guess? <laughs> they were all Marys. Uh, so Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton, Mary Fleming, and Mary Livingston. Okay, so we all straight on Marys. And which one of them had the little lamb? (laughs) (laughs) Right? So they became her ladies-in-waiting and spent time with her in France. Uh, She did go on to marry Francis, and from all accounts, they actually loved each other. Um, They were fast friends and were a really kind of tight couple, kind of like the dream team. Unfortunately, he died very young. And so Mary returned to Scotland um, after his death, and her ladies-in-waiting went with her. So here's where it gets interesting. This group of four Marys was known as the Four Marys. It was super creative. Um, And they were alluded to in a popular ballad about the murder of an illegitimate child. Now, I don't want to, like, step on Andrew's part of things, so I'm just going to, like, talk about what I have to talk about. Andrew's going to talk about this in depth later. But in this song, according to the song, one of the four Marys becomes pregnant by the king of Scotland. Fearing the consequences of the forbidden union, the Mary in the song kills the infant. And when she's found out, she's convicted and she faces her own death. So did this illicit tryst between the King of Scotland and one of the Marys really happen? Well, the evidence suggests that this never happened in the court of Mary, Queen of Scots. Just the timeline doesn't quite work. You know, her French husband died before she came back and then she became Queen of Scotland and then she married another guy, but they weren't married for very long and, you know... Long story short, people really don't think that this happened in her court. Um, So, you know, the question then is, where did these lyrics come from? And how did nobody get slapped with a defamation lawsuit? It's like you're implying (laughs) that the king of Scotland was, you know, whatever, like different times. So I don't know how any of that transpired, but there is a very well-documented crime that's very similar to the one described in the song. And there are some interesting connections. So I don't think anyone can say this happened and then this song was written. Like, nothing is that well documented, but it's very interesting. So over 100 years after the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots, there was a woman of Scottish descent who was living in St. Petersburg, Russia, in the court of Peter III, also known as Peter the Great, the first emperor of Russia, and his wife, Catherine I, who became empress after Peter's death. 
Anyway, this Scottish descendant living in Russia went by the name of Maria Danilovna Gomentova, but her Scottish name was Mary Hamilton, which just so happens to be the name of the ballad I mentioned earlier. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) It's almost like we had this plan. Well, Mary slash Maria was getting it on with Emperor Peter, a tale as old as time. But Catherine was a magnanimous sort, and she not only forgave Peter for all of his bullshit, but she was also kind to his mistresses, Mary included. So Catherine and Mary were buds, and her life in court was pretty cushy. But also a tale as old as time, when Mary, quote-unquote, fell out of favor with Tsar Peter, things kind of went downhill for her. She started seeing a guy named Ivan Orlov, who was also in the royal court. And I'm not going to rattle off all the ways, but believe me when I say he was a dickhead, like, across the board. Um, Or you can just check the source links in the episode notes and find out all the ways that he was a dickhead. So one day, to save his no-good ass with Peter, Ivan confessed to Peter that Mary had aborted two pregnancies and killed a newborn baby that she had been unable to abort and had been stealing trinkets from Catherine, which they were given to Ivan in the hopes of preventing him from leaving Mary for her friend, but he conveniently failed to mention that part when he was confessing someone else's crimes to Peter. To top it off, Ivan suggested that, for all he knew, the poor baby that had been killed could have been Peter's. Which, I mean, it could have been because Peter was also a punk ass and kept getting with Mary even after she quote-unquote fell out of favor. So the patriarchy is thick in this one, but probably the baby was Ivan's because that's who she was living with. Um... So for these crimes, Mary slash Maria was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, just like in the song. Catherine actually pleaded for Mary's life to be spared, but Peter, punk ass that he was, invoked God. He is quoted as saying to Mary before her execution, without breaking the laws of God and the state, I can't save you from death. After she was beheaded, he picked up her head, talked to the audience for a while about the anatomy of a severed head, kissed her head, and then pitched it in the trash. So who's the monster here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a lot to unpack, a lot of violence, a lot of misogyny. <laughs> and in the end, I mean, I am not condoning infanticide or murdering your rivals, etc. obviously, But what you kind of see here is two women, Mary I of England, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, and Mary Hamilton, a.k.a. Maria Danilovna Gamantova, kind of playing a game that they didn't invent and which didn't favor them at all. And ultimately, they paid the price for trying to exist in that world with some kind of agency and autonomy. So, you know, it's just sad all around. Yeah. Just to put in a quick plug, The Great on Hulu, so good. Mm, About Catherine? (laughs) Yeah. With the, oh, what's her name? L. Fanning. I was like, Dakota Fanning's sister. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's incredibly funny, but an interesting look into this time and the court of Peter um, and the eventual reign of Catherine, but... I also really like that that show, I mean, it's 
it's a comedy and it starts off i think the d- disclaimer is like it's like the great asterisk and then an, the asterisk is like the sometimes true story because <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot of liberties but i loved season one and cannot wait for season two okay good recommendation there so um, before jumping into Mary Hamilton's story through the song, through culture, I wanted to take a step back to have a little bit of a bigger discussion about murder ballads in general. Please head over to Apple Podcast and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. So they're a subgenre of the traditional ballad, uh, and they deal with a crime or a gruesome death. And the lyrics, they're normally from a narrative that describes the events of a murder, often including the lead-up and or aftermath. Mm. So murder ballads make up a notable portion of traditional ballads, many of which originated in Scandinavia, England, and lowland Scotland in the Middle Ages. Mm. Now, in those... While the murder is committed, the murderer usually suffers justice at the hand of the victim's family, even if the victim and the murderer are related. So in these ballads, murderous women usually burn, men are usually hung. But there's also an African music tradition that was brought in with slavery and the slave trade that blended the conventions. So... It's noted that the murder ballad traditional of the American Old West is distinct to some extent from the ballads rooted in the old broadside tradition, noting that Western settlers found murder and bloodshed fascinating and composed local ballads. With the printing facilities scarce, many of these items were not published at all, while others saw fame only briefly in the columns of local newspapers. As a result, true Western murder ballads, except those about such famous outlaws as Jesse James, Sam Bass, um, and their ilk, have been entirely lost or are known only to the children of those who knew them and sang them. These children are now, of course, very old men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the best examples of Western murder ballads will be forever lost when those folks die. Wow. Wow. So just, I I felt like the history was interesting. Yeah, definitely. And some historical murder ballads have even become pop hits, uh, specifically in the 50s and 60s. So the Kingston Trio had a song called Tom Dooley, which was a number one Billboard hit in 1958. Lloyd Price's version of Stagger Lee also reached number one in 1959. Mm Mm-hmm. And Lefty Frizzle's Long Black Veil was a hit for multiple artists. So murder ballads have been and continue to be a huge part of musical tradition to this day. And just a personal reflection, one of my absolute favorites is Dolly Parton's Banks of the Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, So since I said it aloud, I will also put it on our Spotify playlist because I love that song so much. And she sort of flips it, you know, with her own image. She's secondhand telling the story uh, where she's like a journalist that's interviewing the convicted man, Mm -hmm. where traditionally murder ballads are sung in the voice of the murderer. Got it. Wow. I, I had no idea it was such an established tradition. And 
I, I don't even have this in my notes. I'm just going off of my head from other things I've known in the past, but it like public executions in that big phase, people would write murder ballads about them and then sell the sheet music for like a penny. And so like, it, it would be like merch you could buy at the hanging is the, the sheet music for the song about the murder. Mm. No. People that's, were crazed. That's, that's <laughs> gauche. <laughs> I mean, there's a right way and a wrong way to attend a public execution. <laughs> so... Just as an aside, there's a song from the B- the Bee Gees. I almost called them the BJs. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different band. That's a different band. Um, there's a song by the Bee Gees, like not in their disco era, but I think it is a murder ballad. I'm going to look it up here real quick. Yeah, it's super popular. And I think just as a, oh, yeah, I've got to get a message to you. Can we put that in Spotify, too? I think it says something about my, like, creepy tendencies, even at an early age, that I love that song when I was a kid. And it's all about how, like, he killed this woman's new lover because he was jealous, and now he's going to be executed. Yeah, I, well, I think... Well, definitely we'll put it on the Spotify, but I think murder ballads will be sort of a recurring well to pull from for episodes kind of like this one that's based on real life incidents Mm -hmm. yeah definitely so interesting so getting in back to mary hamilton um the four marys is commonly the name for this well-known 16th century murder ballad so in all versions of the song mary hamilton is a personal attendant to the queen of scots but precisely which queen is not specified She becomes pregnant by the queen's husband, the king of Scots, which results in the birth of a baby. Mary kills the infant, in some versions by casting it out to sea or drowning, and in others by exposure. The crime is seen, she's convicted, and the ballad recounts Mary's thoughts about her life and her impending death in a first-person narrative. So I'm going to read a little bit of the lyrics, but I also did a thing, (laughs) which was... I recorded a cover of the song. Um, It is amazing. (laughs) It's very long. So I'll read some of these lyrics and I'll play like a minute and a half of it. And then I'll put the whole song, the like five and a half minute version at the (laughs) end of the episode. If folks are so inclined to listen. And you should because it's incredible. So, um, yeah, I'll read a little bit and then I'll play that bit. So, yester evening, the queen had four Marys. The night shall have but three. There was Mary Seaton and Mary Beaton and Mary Carmichael and me. Oh, little did my mother think the day she cradled me, the lands I was to travel in, the death I was to die. So now I'll jump over to the bit of the song that I'm going to play. Cast off, cast off my gown, she cried, but let my petticoat be, and tie a napkin round my face, the gallows I would not see. 
with the pitiful eye. Come down, come down, Mary Hamilton. Tonight you will dine with me. I hold your tongue, my sovereign liege, and let your folly be. For if you'd a mind to save my life, you'd never have shamed me here. Last night there were four Marys, tonight there'll be but three. There was Mary Beaton and Mary Seaton and Mary Carmichael and me. I mean, just goosebumps. Can you see them? Holy shit. Oh, my God. So I just want the listener to know, because I I did this work, because that's my my assigned duty of the podcast. I went into Spotify to prepare for this, and I listened to, I don't know, probably 20 versions of this song. There are a ton of them. And I'm not saying this just because I love you. I'm not saying this because I love you at all, but that is my favorite version. Ah, thank you. <laughs> it's so amazing. Oh, my gosh. It was fun to learn. And then I also sort of accidentally sang it in a slightly Irish accent. It works. It just everything about it works. And now I feel like we need to address the elephant in the room, which is listeners wondering to themselves, why the fuck you're like doing a podcast with me when you should be like America's Ed Sheehan? Sheeran? (laughs) Just me mispronouncing people's names and stuff. But seriously. Uh, It's a thing I like to do. (laughs) But yeah, so I'll put the full uh, five and a half minute version at the end. It's a very long song. Wow, that's amazing. That's what you call bonus content. Not even officially bonus. It's like bonus on the non-bonus. But this has been an extremely popular murder ballad. I mean, Kirsten just mentioned it, but it's been recorded dozens of times, and it's been way more than that all throughout history. I mean, it goes back to the 1600s. And then so James Madison Carpenter recorded several versions in Scotland in the early 1930s. So the part that I'm talking about is like, music recording history. (laughs) So there's hundreds of years of oral tradition, but um, the first sort of known uh, recordings, there was uh, several versions in Scotland in the 30s, and then more versions out of Scotland in the mid-50s, and then later in England in 1966, Um, But it's also made its way to the United States. Uh, So back in 1941 was the first known recording of it uh, in the United States, and then again in 72. But versions have been found in Canada, Nova Scotia, uh, New Brunswick, and Ontario. So across Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a commonwealth. It makes sense, sort of, the migration (laughs) of the song as well. And sort of most famously... The song was recorded by the Corries, a Scottish folk group, 
Italian singer-songwriter Angelo Branduardi. <laughs> Branduardi. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I like your and Italian accent. <laughs> the incredible American singer-songwriter Joan Baez. Yeah. Interestingly, so obviously the song in and, in and of itself is a part of pop culture. Uh, you know, it's massively made its way across continents, across countries and cultures. And so just the music alone has stood the test of time. It's been a cultural artifact. But an interesting path I took in the research was that the story took on new life in 1927 in the form of Virginia Woolf's extended essay, A Room of One's Own. And in that essay, she alludes to the characters in the ballad. So for those not familiar The work is an important feminist text and argues for both a literal and figurative space for women writers with the literary tradition that's dominated by men. So she sums up the stark contrast between how women are idealized in fiction writing by men and how patriarchal patriarchal society has treated women in real life. Mm -hmm. So this is a quote from her. Women have burnt like beacons in all the works of all the poets from the beginning of time. Indeed, if women had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance. Very various, (laughs) historic (laughs) and mean, splendid and sordid, beautiful and hideous in the extreme. As great as a man, some would say greater, but this is woman in fiction." In fact, as Professor Travelin points out, she was locked up, beaten, and flung about the room. A very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors and fictions. In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words and profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could hardly read, scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. Mm. Incredibly powerful. Yeah. And powerful even today, which is so sad. Yeah. So a room with its view has affected culture in ways that probably nothing in previous episodes has. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in a practical sense, like in 1975, five women in Madison, Wisconsin, founded the feminist bookstore, A Room of One's Own. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I might have just had A Room with a View, which is a movie. I'll have to <laughs> go back and see if I misspoke, but A, a Room of One's Own. Mm-hmm. Um, a literary journal launched in Vancouver in 1975 by West Coast Feminist Literary Magazine Society originally shared the name and condensed it to just Room in 2007. The Smiths' 1985 song Shakespeare's Sister is named after a section of that essay. A Room of One's Own was adapted by Patrick Garland, and that premiered in 1981, which then that was adapted in 91 to PBS Masterpiece Theater. The Two Nice Girls is a band. Their third album from 91 um, was called Chloe Liked Olivia, referencing the essay. So on that same front, Chloe plus Olivia, an anthology of lesbian literature from the 17th century to the present, was published in 1994 by Lillian Faderman. 
Patricia Lampkin's play Balancing the Moon from 2011 was inspired by the essay. There's even a woman's co-working space in Singapore called Wolf Works, opened in 2014 and was named after her in tribute to the essay. Mm -hmm. So just such an incredible and unexpected legacy for Mary Hamilton Mm -hmm. and her story and the way that it is. I mean, we, I talk about ripple effects. Sometimes I even talk about like tentacles (laughs) for some of these things of like, you would have never guessed any sort of connection back. Yeah. And all because we thought it would be interesting to talk (laughs) about Bloody Mary, the kids game. (laughs) I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about this, though, is that you never know. You know, we kind of think of a topic or we think of a crime and we never know exactly where it will end up. And I I just find that fascinating. I so agree with you. I mean, it really is. And I think, you know, we've talked about it maybe even in every single one of our episodes, but it's sort of what drives us on this path and it's sort of what makes it feel not stale in our own research Mm -hmm. because it's like... I never know where it's going to go. Yeah. And I think that in terms of cultural storytelling, I think it is important. And, you know, you and I, I think, believe the same thing in that true crime and the interest in true crime is not something new. We've talked about that before. But I also think that the interest, it's it can be looked down on, I think, at times as something purient or exploitative. But I do think it serves an important function. And in telling the story of a society, um, it, it kind of, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> it was going to be so fucking profound, too. <laughs> I kind of want to leave this in. But <laughs> you totally. We'll see. You totally can. <laughs> Man, that was going to be so deep and it's just gone. It's going to come to me at three o'clock this morning. <laughs> so sort of the deep piece to me, and this is in no way, just like you said earlier, in no way saying that Mary the first was good mm-hmm. and burning 300 Protestants <laughs> to death. Like, truly heinous, like no um, sugarcoating that. But I I felt like such an interesting bond and kinship at the end of this research, like thinking of Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Mm -hmm. Own, um, sort of this message of how women are treated in history and poetry and art. And to think, I mean, her her moniker is Bloody Mary Mm -hmm. and her father killed 72,000 people. Like, uh, what we do to women. So I felt like there was such a beautiful kinship (laughs) in the story um, making its way into this feminist thought, this feminist statement that that has helped to change the world. And then taking that look back with a fresh lens at Mary the First and how history treated her Mm -hmm. and how she as a woman is recorded um, you know, as one of the worst figures in history. She's Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. And the truth behind that, I thought there was sort of a poetic resonance. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think the same thing with Mary Hamilton, you know, whether or not the song is connected to, uh, you know, the court of Peter the Great, that story is 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 a story as old as time in the sense that women without access to reproductive choices 
we're forced into some really grim situations. And, you know, Mary Hamilton's story could have been completely different if, you know, abortion had been accessible or birth control had existed back then or a lot of different things. And, you know, unfortunately, those are conversations that we're still having. But, yeah, it it really speaks to me the way, you know, I think what I was trying to get at before is the way that we use these artifacts to tell the story of ourselves and our society and a snapshot of what our society is at that moment. And you get these artifacts that are very old, but they evolve with our society over time and they're adapted to serve the needs of that current society. But yeah, it's just, it's all really, really interesting to me. And listeners, thanks for going on this journey with us. This episode, unlike any of our others, has really been a journey It's not where we expected to go, Mm -hmm. but I am so happy with where we ended up. And we completely and utterly appreciate the hell out of you. Yes. (laughs) Word is to the kitchen gone, and word is to the Right.
not weep for me. For had I not slain my own wee babe, this night I would not die. A little did my mother think when first she cradled me. The lands I was to travel in and the death I was to die. Last night I washed the queen's feet listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic, or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, you can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content, discounts at our merch store, and more if you head over to patreon.com slash mostfoulpod. We appreciate the hell out of you. This has been a Facts from Janet production.